Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. And I'm Justin McElroy. Still. Still. Consistent. That's, That's what people want in a podcast host, consistency. <laughs> to remain Justin McElroy throughout the entire podcast. Observe me or do not observe me. I am still Justin McElroy. Justin, I have a story for you. Are you ready? Yes. You don't say, I mean, you didn't respond. Like, you didn't say, great, or woohoo. Or, oh, the I love stories. The idea that I would hold a story from you is beyond comprehension. I just uh-huh. thought that was assumed. Uh-huh. Uh, this story uh, was from Riley, my sister. Mm-hmm. She told me the other day that she was driving a van full of fellow college age students. And they were discussing a vaccine. And whether or not some of them who had not yet received the vaccine should get the vaccine. And she shared with me this disturbing story of of one of the students telling everyone else that she knew this vaccine was secretly dangerous and if they hadn't gotten it already don't because Mm. there were all kinds of side effects that people didn't know about and were hidden Mm. and you shouldn't get it now if you're a long time listener to Sawbones at this point you've probably guessed where we fall on this but I'm I'm eager to hear more well I mean I suppose no, there's just nothing. I was I, I always try to like see the other side of things, but there's not here. There's not another side of this. They were discussing, as you may have guessed, the HPV vaccine. Now, I will say today in 2019, I could have been talking about any of the vaccines. Heartbreakingly, it's, yes. Sadly, all vaccines have been uh, called into question by people who don't know anything about vaccines. They are still, by the way, safe and effective Trust everyone who knows anything about vaccines. Trust us. Still great. If, hey, listen, buy, go buy the T-shirt on McElroyMerch.com. <laughs> it says vaccine safe and effective since, I think, 1796. Uh, we just actually donated. I mean, we didn't. You all did by buying the shirt. $2,000 towards uh, vaccine awareness. Mm-hmm. Uh, Education and combating exactly this kind of misinformation yes. that threatens public health and safety, yeah. as well as the health and safety of the college students inside the van that my sister was driving. Yes. So I want to talk about human papillomavirus, HPV, and the vaccine, because even though it doesn't have a, a it's not a very old history that I want to go through. It's like in our lifetime, right? I mean, I, I don't. The I vaccine don't, is in our lifetime. The history of HPV is, well, is obviously before yes. our lifetime. Right. Uh, but I feel like of, of all the vaccines, this one. And maybe the flu vaccine. These two are the ones that people want to debate the most. Mm-hmm. 
everything else, it's kind of it's it's like an all or nothing. They're either all in or all out. But these are the two that I'll find even like the most staunch vaccine advocates will for some reason hesitate when it comes to the HPV vaccine. Mm-hmm. And there is no reason to do that. And so I thought it was worth talking about because uh, the vaccine to prevent high risk types of human papillomavirus is really a landmark vaccine. Do you know what differentiates it from other vaccines, Justin? Uh, well, no. In a good way. This is in a good way. Oh, Okay. What no. it can do <laughs> that most vac- that the other vaccines really aren't aimed at doing, it can prevent cancer, which is you that know seems a huge. big deal. Seems right? awesome to me. Right? We we live in a time where we still, while we do have some effective cancer treatments, we don't have a one shot cure for cancer. We don't have a, a you know works every time, every cancer, every stage. way we still there's a lot of unpredictability and a lot we have to learn and so something that could prevent cancer before it starts i mean when the hpv vaccine first came out this should have been like a triumphant moment in human history where we all came together and held hands kumbaya uh brought our brought our young people because this vaccine is targeted mainly at children although we'll get into the more than children can get the vaccine brought all of our children to their doctors immediately to get their vaccines and then cracked open a bottle of like sparkling grape juice because for the kids kids, for the the kids kids. there and celebrate uh but that didn't happen (gasps) because of a lot of misinformation and probably some sex stuff (laughs) hpv is responsible for almost all cases of cervical cancer which i think we most people have heard by now Yes. Most people have heard that. I would hope people know that at this point. It is. It's also responsible, by the way, for 95% of anal cancers. Yeah. Don't hear that stat as much. You don't hear that brought up as as many times. People, when the vaccine was released, it it was really targeted at preventing cervical cancer, even though, as we'll talk about, it is not the only cancer that the vaccine can prevent. Um, That was kind of the big marketing angle, I would say. Uh, HPV is the most common sexually transmitted disease. And more than 79 million Americans have human papillomavirus. And most people have no idea because it's one of those viruses that can just be there and not necessarily do anything to you. There's not a reliable test that we do for HPV. It's not like I can just go like give you a quick HPV screen. Mm-hmm. And tell you whether or not you have it. Um, there are a lot of different types. There are a hundred types of HPV. And when we're talking about human papillomavirus and HPV, most people think I'm trying to use those terms. I'm, I'm trying to use them interchangeably enough that I can just say HPV for the rest of the. Is that is that OK to do? I think that's fine. Is that fine at this point? I was trying to reiterate that enough so I could just say HPV. Uh, there are about 60 that just cause warts on non-genital places. OK. So if you have a wart on your finger, that's caused by an HPV, a human papillomavirus. But I had warts on my finger before I was, if I may, sexually active. Well, that is because, Justin, not all types of HPV are sexually transmitted. The types that cause a wart on your finger are just from touching things with the virus. Frogs, right? I knew that (laughs) much at least. (laughs) Not frogs. Darn it. Other warts (laughs) or other people who have the virus. 
I mean, it's spread from it's spread by contact that isn't necessarily sexual. Now, there are 40 that are sexually transmitted and can cause various manifestations in the genitals. Uh, the lower risk things uh, like specifically strains six and 11. And these numbers aren't super important until we really get to the vaccine, which is why I mentioned them. Mm-hmm. But the lower risk strains cause about 90 percent of genital warts. So genital warts uh, are not they don't they don't develop into cancer. Almost ever, almost ever, any kind of wart-like growth is going to develop into cancer. Right. So that's why we call them low risk. It's important to establish that because so many people have HPV. I don't want people to think it's like a death sentence. No, 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 no. And certainly not if you have genital warts. Uh, genital warts, they often, like, they're the little wart-like growths that often look like cauliflower, which mm-hmm. a, a lot of warts can, you know, outside of the genitals. They can start to get that appearance. Um, they show up weeks or months after you've had sex with somebody who was also infected if you than if it was transmitted. Uh, and they're usually treatable through other either mechanical methods like removing them or their medications and that kind of thing. Um, these were not the reason, I would say, for the development of the vaccine. Mm. While they are, I mean, most people don't want to have them. They're not life-threatening. All right. They're, certain, they're certainly much, much worse things, mm-hmm. you know, like the high-risk strains. Um, most, Unless you're a genital model, in which case they could be livelihood-threatening. Well, that's fair. You know. That's fair. And I mean, I'm not I shouldn't downplay that. There's a lot of uh, personal like there's a lot of stigma associated with any kind of sexually transmitted infection. Sure. And so th- there can be a lot of self-esteem issues and, and body image issues related to them, even if they're not necessarily painful or causing We're not saying you know, it's you know. good. No. To have genital warts. Well, I don't want to. Sawbones has been very clear about this from the beginning. I don't want to downplay the impact that can have on your quality of, of course, life. Yeah. Um, the high risk strains are what we're concerned about when it comes to cancer. So mainly 16 and 18. There are some other high risk strains that are less common and less likely to cause cancer, but are out there. Uh, and they cause about 70 percent. The 16 and 18 alone cause 70 percent of cervical cancers. And then when you add in all the other ones. The majority of cervical cancers come from this. Cervical cancer is the second most common and fifth leading cause of death of people who have cervixes worldwide. That's so, terrible. It's it's a big deal. It's a big problem. And not just cervical cancer can be caused by human papillomaviruses, penile cancer, anal cancer, vaginal cancer, uh, vulvar cancer. And then uh, one that is often not mentioned, a lot of people associate it with with different like with the genitals Mm -hmm. you know with everything below the waist but there are oropharyngeal cancers so cancers in the back of the mouth like the base of the tongue or tonsillar cancers there are cancers that you can get there from human papillomaviruses so uh you don't have to have a cervix to be concerned about this right fair uh now the this idea that a cancer could be caused by a virus first originates in the 1950s and 60s. Um, we prior to that, you wouldn't necessarily assume that, right? Mm-hmm. Like we didn't know we didn't know what caused cancer. Yeah, but that's a that's a big jump because you would think the idea that a certain thing could do two things that seemed unrelated, I think, would be a complex idea for us now, even today, let alone way back in the annals of history. It really, I think when you read stories like this, it's a testament to how, uh, while you need, I, I talk so much about evidence and fact and like the scientific method, but I think that all science is aided by having some, um, creativity, some imagination, mm-hmm. ability thinking. to, yeah, lateral yeah. thinking, um, 
and then you and then apply the scientific method to those ideas mm-hmm. to get to the truth. Uh, but I think that is how that led people to begin researchers in the 50s and 60s to begin to notice um, a strange observation that if you looked at the age at which people started having sex, their first you know, sexual encounter. Mm-hmm. Cervical cancer seemed to be more common among people who had their first sexual experience at a younger age and had a higher number of sexual partners, Okay, which started to connect the dots where is this some sort of, you know, contagious thing? And that's that was weird. The idea. I mean, cancer isn't contagious. Mm hmm. Why? I mean, why? Why would we be seeing this? You it can't a catch lot. cancer. The only alternative is that too much sex gives you cancer, right? <laughs> Which it does not. We did I, not go that route, thank goodness. No, no, and I am not saying that. I am not saying too much sex causes cancer. I would never say that. Uh, but it began to. This is, you know, it's it's funny because you've got to look at like as our microscopes got better. And we started to understand first germs were a thing and bacteria were a thing. And then we could see smaller things because viruses are smaller. And so then eventually we saw viruses. And so then in that, like that's already in the cultural kind of concept among all these scientists. And now all of a sudden, wait, cancer being contagious? No. But you know what is contagious? A virus would be contagious. Mm. And this is where we get to German virologist Harold Zurhausen, who had already noticed an association between a different virus, Epstein-Barr virus, EBV, which can cause certain kinds of cancer. And I I want to be very clear, this does not mean that if you had mono or have mono or have ever been diagnosed with mono or EBV that you are at risk for cancer. Mm-hmm. Much like HPV, there are many different types of EBV. Okay. So I just want to, a lot of people have heard of EBV and I don't want you to freak out when you hear that. But he had noticed these associations and so he started thinking, I wonder if there's something here with with the cervical cancer yeah. cases. I wonder if there's some similar there's kind a correlation of correlation there. Maybe it's the same thing. Yeah, maybe there's a connection. Uh, and the thing that got him interested in specifically papillomaviruses, because we already at this point knew of the existence of these wart viruses, mm-hmm. the viruses that cause wart on your hands and the viruses that were causing warts on the genitals. Uh, he he had heard through some different researchers that perhaps there was a higher rate of this cervical cancer among people who also had genital warts. Okay. I, this, if this correlation existed, it's interesting because I guess if it did, it would just be that they would be infected with two different strains. Oh, because it doesn't cause... The strains that cause genital warts are different from the strains that cause cervical cancer. Oh, I don't think we clarified that. That's good to know. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was this correlation, and I mean, maybe we're talking about people who are exposed to multiple sexual partners or something. Who knows what this group of this cohort was? However, they got this idea. It turned his interest to papillomaviruses, and uh, there was some research from the 30s that suggested that there was a certain type of papillomavirus that caused both warts and cancers in rabbits, and so this led him to investigate papillomaviruses. And so he started out first with HPV-6, which is one of the ones I've already mentioned can cause warts. And he came up with nothing there, Mm -hmm. right? Because as we already covered, it caused the warts, but it didn't cause cervical cancer. So he started there and that led him to check other strains of HPV. And he finally was able to, in 1983, connect 
uh, HPV 11, strain 11, with some cases of cervical cancer. Hmm. But that wasn't enough. That was good. It was it was intriguing evidence. Uh, researchers all began to turn their interest to HPV, but it wasn't enough to, you know, say that this was causation. So he went on next to study different types of HPV, specifically HPV 16 and then 18. And that was really when he you know, struck gold from a research perspective mm. because now he had stumbled upon the two types of HPV that are linked with the majority of cervical cancers. I have a question to ask you and you may not know the answer, but um, why is it called the human papillomavirus? Doesn't that go that saying? Usually when you see a human whatever virus, it's because there is also a similar type of virus that can only infect some other species other than humans. In this case, bovine papillomavirus is a thing. So that's cows. I know. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> I don't know medical stuff, but like I knew about you that. Looked, you had a blank look. That well, in my mean, head, I was thinking about, well, we should just call ours papillomavirus and call theirs bovine papillomavirus because we get to name everything. Seems weird to put, but I see how that's a bit, that, that might be confusing for people because if you don't say human, then if you're at like a dinner party with a bunch of um, nerds, if you say papillomavirus, then they'll ask you, excuse me, uh, are you speaking of the human papillomavirus or a different strain? Or the bovine. Okay. The bovine. Yeah. Well, I have a funny joke. Here's a funny 15 minute anecdote about bovine papillomavirus. I am going to get into bovine papillomavirus before this is all over, but. Uh, no, I would say that that's probably more related to the fact that, at least from my perspective, the more you study science, uh, the less convinced you are of the superiority of the human race to all other species on Earth. Okay. And fair. so uh, I think that just just taking papillomavirus and and assuming human is a level of um, it's a it's a level of ego. I don't know that we have we have we are worthy of. Is that fair? Fair enough. Okay. So anyway, he once once he turned everybody on to this this idea that linked HPV to cancer. Uh, there were people all over the world started doing the same studies. And first, there were studies from twenty two different countries that linked uh, cervical can ninety three percent of cervical cancer to HPV. And then in ninety nine, they did a bigger study and eventually came up with ninety nine point seven percent of cervical cancer samples that they checked in this study contained HPV. That's wild. So almost every single case of cervical cancer came from HPV. That's wild. Um, so it, this was this was among, uh, this was when we finally said this is definitely yes. Yeah. Yes, we have we've done the research, we've proved it. Um, there are a lots of different kinds of HPV. They they zeroed in on the ones that were responsible for most uh, cancers and were most dangerous to get. Um, and they began to understand other other things about this, that even if you have a high risk HPV, um, you might like you might test positive for it, but not everybody gets cancer from it. That's an important thing to know. Mm -hmm. Right. Because I've already said so many people have HPV. You'd right. think, well, everybody would be getting cancer from it. Well, no, because even if you get 16 or 18, one of the high risk strains, sometimes your body clears it. Um, sometimes you will develop some precancer lesions and then that will clear up on its own. Uh, and we know all of these different things, the way we learned all of, of kind of the stages, how does it go from, I got the virus in my body to cancer? What, what all is involved in that transition? We learned a lot about that because of Dr. Papanicola and his famous smear. 
We've already talked about him. We did a whole episode about the right. pap smear. We're not pivoting into a long section about Dr. Pepper Nicola. No, but but then this led to once we once we had the development of the pap smear, we could take all this information where we connected HPV to cervical cancer and learn a lot more about, you know, this transition from one to the other. And it's worth noting that in 2008, uh, uh, Zerhausen won a Nobel Prize Yay. For, this, for this connection. So this is great. Now we have, we know that the the majority of cervical cancers and some other cancers are caused by HPV. We know Huge. it. Huge. We know which strains, and we've got a Pap smear. And if we use Pap smears well as a screening tool, if people get their Pap smears, everyone who should get one, if they get them when they should, we can detect early changes that indicate a cancer could be brewing and we can prevent deaths from cervical cancer. And that is exactly what happened with the pap smear. We prevented, we caught a lot more precancerous lesions and we prevented deaths. And this was all excellent. But what's better than catching cancer early and preventing it from progressing? Stopping it in the first place. That's right, Justin. Thank and I'm going to tell you how we did that. But first, let's go to the billing department. Well, let's go. The medicines, the medicines that Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts, and that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed, but we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat delicious meals right to your door, and not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got, like, fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From, from, from a, a box? Pre-prepared, all I got at two minutes, I'm eating filet mignon. That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly 
delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. Uh, Sydney, you were going to tell me about our battle against uh, HPV. So... As I already mentioned, bovine papillomavirus was kind of the early one of the early keys to our success in in creating a vaccine against human papillomavirus uh, because we had been in the veterinary world. Our veterinary uh, colleagues were looking for a vaccine to protect cows from getting, uh, I guess, BPV because it can cause tumors Mm -hmm. since like the 50s. And all of this kind of body of research that already existed to try to create this cow vaccine was helpful when uh, they started working on a a vaccine for humans. Um, The first they they noticed that uh, there was a molecule that was very similar to a corresponding molecule in the human papillomavirus 16 that could uh, protect cows from getting the bovine form and that was kind of an early breakthrough so they used this cow science and they applied it to humans cow um, science doesn't get enough credit just because they're too big to wear lab coats doesn't mean that cow science cow science should be neglected <laughs> by us humans it's egotistical i like haven't the- you people ever seen the far side <laughs> that's are, true those cows are cows doctors are scientists and all kinds of different things uh I like this science because it was altruistic on both counts. We wanted to protect cows and we wanted to protect humans and we get vaccines for both. Uh, the If we're going to give credit to some scientists for the vaccine, uh, there were some, there were two docs, two scientists in Queensland, Australia who, and I mean, this is, it's one of those things, any, anything, any big discovery, you can probably find a little bit of controversy over so the two scientists that are usually credited are Professor Ian Fraser and Dr. Jian Zhou. These two Australian scientists made this uh, great vaccine. And in, and basically after that, companies started. Uh, this is one of those where I like the stories where we talk about how nobody patented it. They just gave it out to everybody for free. In this case, yes, people patented it and started <laughs> producing it. But somebody had to make the vaccine. So they started uh, rolling out the vaccine um, in 2006. The first one came out. That was Gardasil. Okay, I've heard about that. Mm-hmm. And that protected against strains 6 and 11 that cause the warts and 16 and 18 that can cause cancer. In 2007, uh, another vaccine, kind of a competitor, came out from a different company called Cervarix that only protected against the cancer-causing strains, 16 and 18. Um, and the reason is that it was more just like they thought, one, at first they thought it was a little more effective than Gardasil and two they were targeting the real what they kind of considered the real problem I think in most places Gardasil has overtaken Cervarix due to cost effectiveness issues okay um, they're both very effective, I should say. And then uh, most recently in 2014, Gardasil 9 came out, which protects against, it's the same vaccine in that it protects against the original four strains, but it added five more mm-hmm. strains of, uh, of potentially cancer-causing 
HPVs um, to it. So it's same idea, just covers against more strains. Um, not unusual for vaccines. The flu vaccine you get every year covers against multiple strains of influenza and it changes every year. So. Perfect. Uh, so they started vaccine programs in a lot of different places. Australia was one of the early places that they started them. Um, Scotland, Denmark, eventually, of course, in the U.S., we started manda- not mandatory vaccination programs, but like routine recommending them, I should say, as, as routine parts of childhood, childhood immunizations. Uh, initially, this vaccine was only recommended for uh People age nine to twenty-seven who have service who have a cervix, services, services, services. Okay, that is confusing Mm. to me. Yes, because everybody's almost pretty much everybody has an anus, (laughs) and it causes ninety-five percent of anal cancers. Yes. Well. It's a great it's a great point. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And I I mean, part of it is that the early studies were only aimed at people with a cervix. And there's this kind of uh, I've talked about it before, I think, on the show. Even if we know that the vaccine would work in somebody who doesn't have a cervix, if we haven't done the study, we can't just say it. We have to do the study. Okay. And the early programs were really targeted at reducing rates of cervical cancer alone, which you're right. I mean, I, we can, we can argue that the ethics of that and was it short-sighted? Well, to say nothing of herd immunity. I mean, more people vaccinated means, you know, slower contagion rates. Exactly. Exactly. And all these reasons are why. uh, And one thing I should know, you also have to remember that because especially, um, when these vaccines are being made by, you know, for profit companies, they're also constantly doing cost effectiveness. And some of the early studies suggested that it was most cost effective to just vaccinate people with a cervix. Hmm. Um, but you are right. You're leaving everybody who still has all of the other parts that I said can get cancer from HPV, even if it's rare, because it is rare, like penile cancer from HPV. That's ex- that's extremely rare. Ninety-five percent of anal cancers. Yes. I'm just. I mean, we're talking about more rare than cervical cancers. Would be the. I'm. I'm not making this argument. I'm telling you what was in the minds of people okay, who made that's these fine. guidelines. You're off the hook. <laughs> I would not make this argument. I would say that uh, the more the merrier. And indeed, they did do the studies to prove that, of course, the vaccine is safe and effective for people who do not have a cervix as well for people with penises for people with anuses for uh people with vaginas people with uh a vulva what else did i mention people with, people a, with a vulva. an oropharyngeal area so people who have a mouth mm-hmm. and a back of their mouth that's pretty much i mean that's that's Almost everybody. everybody. Yeah. Um, That it's good for all those people. And then they did studies further to prove that not only is is it not restricted to people with cervix, it shouldn't be restricted to people under age 27. And when when we kind of look at that age, like why was that chosen? Again, you have to look at like risk benefit ratios and cost effectiveness ratios. Those that's what determined those early things. Mm -hmm. Um, the thought was most people by the age of 27 have been exposed to HPV if they're gonna. So there's no point in vaccinating it. Cause once you've been, they're once done you have all it, their sex, <laughs> they're done. Well, what they would say is they're done having their sex with new partners. And I would say that that's not true. And that 
if you want to get the vaccine after age 27, there's no reason it's dangerous. But again, we had to do the studies to prove that. And now it is approved from ages 9 to 45. So they gave a wider dosing range. Okay. Um, since they have started these vaccination programs, um, the last numbers I have are from 2017 that said about half, a little under half of adolescents were up to date okay. on their HPV vaccine series. Maybe better. Um, 66% of people between the ages of 13 and 17 got their first dose. I would say that part of the problem with this is the that there initially there were three doses. Now, if you get it before age 15, you can get away with two. Okay. That's enough to, to create immunity. Um, but that was part of the problem. And they you will note the CDC is, is proud of pointing out that uh, between the years thir- 2013 and 2017, uh, the percentage of adolescents who started the HPV vaccine series has increased by five percentage points each year. Good. So, like, it's getting better. And since that time, we've seen results among teens with cervixes, infections with HPV types that cause most of the cancers and warts have dropped 86 percent among young adults with cervixes. That number has dropped 71 percent. And when you look at uh, people who have received the vaccine, the percentage of cervical precancers caused by HPV types has dropped 40 percent. Now, we're not going to see the change in cancer diagnoses yet. Because it takes a long time, usually, usually, not always, but usually it takes a long time from the moment you're infected with a high risk strain of HPV to when that actually becomes cancer. Okay. And so it, it, we're going to have to vaccinate a generation and then watch that generation grow up and, and see rates of cervical cancer among them before we're really able to see the full impact of the vaccine. So if you see, I saw one study that, or one headline, I should say, not study, that suggested that rates of cervical cancer are still going up despite the vaccine. And it, that, yeah, that may well be true, but we're not seeing the effects of the vaccine yet. Right. Um, so what, why is this contentious, Sid? I think part of it are normal vaccine fears, right? Right now we are... Uh, Going back in terms of our, I don't, enlightenment, we're, we're reentering a dark ages of sorts or we're in the midst of one where science is being called into question based on this general mistrust of everything, mm-hmm. this idea that there is no truth, that all, all is opinion. Um, and so you're seeing a lot of concern about like, it's a vaccine and vaccines are unnatural and vaccines have secret chemicals and blah, blah, mm-hmm. all those, all that propaganda that is completely false. And mm-hmm. you know, yeah, that that's hard to, to disrupt just because it's, it's just wrong and it's hard to say anything other than that. I think that's part of it. I do think that the sex thing is the other part of it. HPVs, the HPV that we're concerned about is sexually transmitted. Mm-hmm. And in my personal experience, the, protests that i usually hear are but my kid doesn't have sex right and that's the whole point of why we vaccinate so young so generally speaking you can get that starting at age nine it's on the the vaccine schedule usually around 11 Mm -hmm. that's when most of our patients were we recommend the vaccine to them age 11 uh and i think it's fair to say that at this point, at least in the U.S., the majority of 11-year-olds are not sexually active. Right. And that's exactly why we should give them the vaccine. Right. Because once they've become sexually active, they could have been exposed 
to one of these strains of the virus. Right. And if you've already been exposed, it's too late. I mean, I would still recommend the vaccine because there are other strains in it, but we can't protect you against that one now. Well, it's if you I mean, you would be. If you wait until your child is of a sexually active age, you're putting him in a position where it's like, well, now we have to talk about like before you're sexually active, make sure you come talk to me about it so we can make sure to get you the HPV vaccine. <laughs> like no, no kid is going to do that on earth. It's a very strange thing to me because if I, I've tried to walk down that road and say, okay, but what if you knew your kid was going to start having sex tomorrow? But they won't. That's usually the response I get. Right. And uh, there's and some of that is coupled with this idea that if we start vaccinating everybody against sexually transmitted infections, they won't be afraid of sex and they're more likely to have sex. I, I think we know there's tons of data to say that's not true. Yeah. It's the same idea that if you give people access to birth control or you give people access to uh, abortion care or you give people access to condoms that they're going to be more likely to have sex. And that's not true. They're more likely to engage in safe sex and they're less likely to get sexually transmitted infections in these cases. That's what the statistics have borne out. People are either going to have sex or they're not. And getting a vaccine is certainly not going to make that difference. Um, Some of it is, I just think parents don't want to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. It's another vaccine. Their kid's going to fight them. Um, They don't want it. They're not having sex anyway. I don't want to worry about this right now. Please just, I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. And then part of the fault is, is us, healthcare professionals, doctors. Uh, not you and me. No. Well, me included. I'm a doctor. Uh, but part, not me. What they found is that doctors tend to, because of all these issues, they tend to spend less time discussing HPV vaccines. We tend to throw it to the end of the conversation after we've talked about a Tdap or a meningitis vaccine or a flu vaccine. The last thing we want to do is the HPV vaccine. And we are not as staunch advocates for it, even though we know it's safe and effective, just like all the other vaccines. We don't sell it as well. You're I mean, like, there's data to support this. It's like you're pitching the clear coat right when the person is trying to take their new car off the lot. Like, <laughs> no, I'm not getting the windshield insurance and I'm not getting into that. Just, just please let me go. Uh, a lot of the when they when they ask parents why they refuse to let their kid get the vaccine, a lot of their answers were that they really didn't know much about it or they didn't think it was necessary I mean, the the or the their kid wasn't going to have sex. The last fears were safety, honestly, and that was on the list. I'm not saying they aren't fears. Safety concerns were on the list, but it doesn't seem to be that people think it's more dangerous. It seems to be all this other social stuff around it that is the big one of the big barriers in terms of the safety stuff that has arisen uh, because there's a lot of I mean it's just it frankly it's misinformation it's untrue there are no increased risks with the HPV vaccine compared to any of the other vaccines that you get in your routine childhood vaccination schedule Mm -hmm. Uh, the most common reactions are the same as literally every shot you're ever going to get pain redness swelling at the injection site um There were some early concerns that we were seeing a slightly higher rate of people passing out when they got it, like when they got the vaccine, because that's always a risk, right? Mm -hmm. When I take your blood, if you see blood, if I stick a needle in your arm, some people pass out. It's a vasovagal response. Some people just do it. I'm glad I didn't or med school would have been hard. (laughs) Uh, But there was a concern initially that was there a higher rate? Even that does not has not been borne out by the numbers. Mm -hmm. We still warn that. I, when I give the vaccine, 
I still say after we give it to you, we're going to have you sit here in the office for a few minutes. Don't stand up right away. Right. Just make sure you're feeling OK. You're not lightheaded or dizzy simply because we don't want people crashing to the floor. But nothing dangerous. There's no other anything else you read is entirely unfounded. The HPV vaccine has proven since its inception to be safe and incredibly effective in preventing cancer, which is revolutionary landmark should be cause for celebration. I, I mean, I personally gave my sister Riley one of her Gardasil shots, hmm. one in her series. I personally administered it to her at the office because she was so scared. I would do it. Uh, for myself, I would do it for my own children when they're old enough. I would recommend if you have somebody in your family who is anywhere from nine to 45, they can get the vaccine. I want to go get me one too, Seb. You can get it, Justin. You can get it now. Let's go. Let's wrap up this episode so I can go get my, my guard still. Really, uh, still get your pap smears. If you're someone okay, who should fine. get a pap That's smear. That's going to be a longer conversation, but I think they, I mean, I'll try. <laughs> I always like to throw that caveat in there. A lot of people will ask like, well, once I get it, do I not have to get pap smears? No, because as I mentioned, even though it is incredibly effective at preventing cancer, it is not 100% effective. And so it is still worthwhile to get your pap smears. Um, but we're, you know, the thing is like things will change as we hopefully see a higher and higher rate of people receive the vaccine and we see lower and lower rates of cancer as a result so there's no reason to be scared if you have people who are scared refer them to this episode We'll, get we'll the set, vaccine we'll sort it all out uh folks thank you so much for uh listening to our program we hope you have enjoyed yourself um we uh we really appreciate you tuning in every week if you like our show it'd be great if you could head on over to itunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating or review it really does help the show and it'd be super nice if you would take the time to do that uh we have a book called the sawbones book and you find it at bookstores and online bookstores there's a Kindle version. There's an audiobook version if you want to listen to us read the book based on our podcast in a, in a truly meta moment. Um, thanks to the taxpayers for the use of their song Medicines as the intro and outro of our program. Sydney. Uh, I want to thank uh, one. Uh, whenever I find an article that was particularly helpful in putting together an episode, I like to thank the author, Emma Smith, who wrote a comprehensive history of HPV and the vaccine and lots more than I included in this episode. But But thank you for doing all that research. People Google that. I'm sure they can find that piece and, mm -hmm. and check it out. Mm -hmm. um, folks, that is going to do it for us for this week. So until next time, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. Org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.